We're all on a journey, aren't we? We're all on a journey. Nobody is staying put. We're all either in this faith journey moving toward the Lord or we're moving away. Nobody's stagnant. The book of Exodus that we're studying, we've said, is a metaphor of our journey out of slavery to sin into freedom in Christ. That's what, that's, what this, that's what this story of the Exodus that really happened is all about. That's why God preserved it for us. It's interesting that we know in our particular country there is a, a growing uh, distrust of organized religion. All studies show that. And so while the gospel is making great advancements in the world in different countries, it's not in our country. Nevertheless, uh, while these questions are going on, uh, the UN did a study that of all tourists in the world last year, one out of three were on a spiritual pilgrimage. Isn't that interesting? One third of tourists are on a spiritual. Now, it's across all faiths, of course. But what it reminds me of is that you can't keep squelched this eternity that God put in our hearts, the Bible says. That it is, people try as they might to squelch the sense of the transcendent, that something is beyond us. It can't be squelched. There is a sense there has to be something more. There's something beyond where we are. And we're thankful that we have found that in the person of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So it's in his name that we worship today. It's in his name that we have found salvation and hope and a future. It's why we're here to spur each other on to love and good works. And so in this Exodus story, we come to this chapter 23 today. Now, the first 20, the first 20 ch chapters of, of Exodus have been pretty thrilling. I mean, there's been all kinds of weird things like frogs and lice and uh, pestilence and uh, water turning to blood and waters partying and, and water out of rocks and there's all kinds of stuff yet to come uh, that, that's really wonderful. And then you get to the mountain of God and Mount Sinai uh, when, Matt, when God comes down, and then you get law, and it seems like all the adventure stops, but it doesn't. There's just, there's more to come, but if we don't understand the heart of God and who he is, then everything sort of falls flat. And so God gives a law, I said last week, that the law provided a window into who God is. So chapters 21 and 22 are case studies, all kinds of case studies. And we could take time to look at all of these. We haven't done that. But I do want to say, if you're in the legal profession, you need to spend an intense study in chapters 21 and 22. Because there, even though the case studies are weird to us, they expose what God thinks about making restitution when we have broken somebody's stuff <laughs> or when personal injuries take place. When there, when, when there is a capital offense, what to God is a capital offense? And what does he say about it? Uh, what do we do about the alien? What do we do about the foreigner? Uh, it these laws teach us about the justice of God, the mercy of God, the generosity of God, the hospitality of God, uh, how, how we're to live together. And so, you know, we could spend a month just on those laws and what does it mean for us today. In this particular series, we're not taking time, but we go to chapter 23 when we come toward uh, the, the end of these particular three chapters and God wants to make sure they don't forget. Now, we're all prone to forget. 
the things that are, that are most valuable, the things that are most important. And he doesn't want them to forget. He knows that will happen. And so he's doing his best to help them not. And so he says in verse 14, three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. Now we like feasts. We like parties. We like festivals. We like to get together. A couple summers ago, Diane and I just went to small towns. And uh, that was enough, really. Uh, for, for those uh, little, little small town festivals and villages. You sort of had to be a townie, you know, to really enjoy them, I think, fully. Because it was about people being together, really. About people be- God has always wanted his people to be together. And there are certain times he wanted them to come together to retell his story with them. We never want to get tired of the story. These feasts we're looking at today help us grasp the significance of our own journey toward fullness with God. I trust no one today is satisfied where you are. I just ask you not to be satisfied, but you want more of what God has. So here are the three feasts. The first one is the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Came in spring, verse 15 says, Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread for seven days. Eat bread without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the ninth or in the month of Aviv, for in that month you came out of Egypt. So this came on the tail end of the, of the Passover, when the death angel passed over the homes of the Hebrews so death wouldn't come to their house. They had put blood on the doorposts so, so death would escape them. And then immediately was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Unleavened Bread feast, feast had to do with getting yeast out of your house um, because there's not going to be time for the yeast to work through the dough and raise. When the time comes for you to leave Egypt, he's saying, you got to be ready to go. You can't, be, you can't be waiting for your dough to raise. Pack up and get out of there. So that's what this festival is all about. Uh, it, it was a festival that, I guess, suppose when we think about Good Friday or Resurrection Sundays, Easter Sunday, we're looking backward to something grand that happened. That's the same thing that this festival was as well. It looked back to the saving work of God getting him out of slavery. The second festival is the Feast of Harvest. It came in early summer. Verse 16 says, celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Sometimes this festival is called the Feast of First Fruits because this is, a, this is like the first time you pick your tomato this year. It's like you bring, hey, I got my tomato. You sort of celebrate inside, right? You love watching this stuff grow, or you pull the potato out of the ground, or the carrot, whatever it is. It's fun to get ready, and then you have the first taste, right? And so the, what the Hebrew people would do would take a sheaf of wheat, and they would wave it. And in waving, they were saying, we know there is more to come. It was the beginning of the harvest, and more was to follow. And so we do the same thing. We pick that first tomato, but we keep going out and get more of them. And then we give them away because we planted too many plants, right? That's how it happens all the time. And so this, this particular festival followed with seven weeks of, of, of being thankful. It sometimes it was called the Festival of Weeks because of those seven weeks. Then on day 50, at the end of the seven weeks, they, they brought... They brought an offering to God. This time, they brought mainly bread that was baked with yeast instead of without yeast because it represented God's fullness of the harvest. 
that he was the blessor, the benefactor, that he was giving them what they need. And they made sacrifices. Now, they're more talked about in Leviticus and Numbers. But they tell of this joyful, have this joyful celebration. They rest, they sacrifice, they worship God as provider. And then there's the feast of ingathering that came in the fall about seven months later. Uh, after Passover and after the unleavened bread, um, where every stalk of grain had been threshed, every olive pressed, every grape squeezed, and for a week they lived in booths or uh, temporary dwellings. They built little shacks. And uh, uh, sometimes it's called the Feast of Booths. And by Jesus' time, when we read the Gospels, usually it's referred to as the Feast of the Tabernacles. Because when they left slavery in Egypt, they had to live in temporary dwellings as they were moving toward the Promised Land. So this was celebrating that time God provided them in this journey. Leviticus 23 says this, Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the nations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in temporary shelters for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in such shelters. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Uh, there have been rare occasions uh, living here when I've been in the city that uh, I would see a little booth in the backyard of a, of a Jew. Now, now, most Jews in our area probably would be more Reformed Jews. They're not necessarily anticipating the Messiah, but the Orthodox Jews would be. And they would still do this kind of thing to celebrate and anticipate uh, what, who they believe is going to be the Messiah, somebody other than Jesus. And look back to God's rescue, and, and they were reenacting what God had done by building these booths. Ever been to a Civil War reenactment? A Revolutionary War reenactment. It's the same kind of thing. They were reenacting what God was doing. And imagine what a great teaching tool for their kids. Dad, Gramps, why are we, why are we doing this? We have a house. Oh, let me tell you what God did for our people. And then the story could be told. The story never got old. It was told. God wanted the story told time after time. Each new generation would experience this. It would be all about God's call, his faithfulness, his, his, his covenant relationship that he established with the Jewish people. And they would bring at this festival more sacrifices than all the other festivals. In fact, it says in verse 15, none shall appear before me empty-handed. Never must we appear before the Lord empty-handed after he has given us so much. We're always returning more to him. Now, we don't do these feasts, but, but what's the significance of them? What do, we, what do we do with them here in the 21st century? Let me make some application. First, I mean, before I get into it, really, they're telling the story of God's salvation and provision, and that's what we're doing for one another all the time. The festival of unleavened bread gives us a picture of what it means to be sanctified in Christ. Now, you'll never hear that word sanctified except in church. But to be sanctified means to be cleaned, made holy, and set apart. Whenever we use the word holy, we think of, you know, ivory towers, halos, you know, you know this kind of high thing where it's just weird and religious. But to be holy simply means to be made clean and then set apart to be of use to God. And the cleaner we become, the more, uh, we become of greater use to God. 
And so God always cares about us. The night they left Egypt in slavery, they were to sweep the house of yeast. Since that yeast represents evil and sin, the spread of sin in our lives. Mostly in the Bible, when the Bible talks about yeast, as it uses as an illustration, it's about evil. When Jesus, remember one time, warned the disciples about the yeast of the Pharisees, the evil, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Um, and so their houses were swept. And then the other two feasts to follow, they're more about God's provision. And I love that picture because that's our lives. We are rescued, we're saved, but then we start experiencing the fullness of the provision of God and our salvation keeps getting bigger and better all the time. You think, you've, you think you get it and then you come to a season in your life where, where maybe you're going through pain or hurt or struggle or sorrow and you pour yourself out and you find that God meets you there and he blesses your life no matter what's going on and your heart gets bigger in spite of all life circumstances. That's the nature of God. Not only does he rescue us, but he keeps making us better and better all the time. So when Paul, the apostle, was writing to the Corinthian church in the New Testament, this is what he wrote. Get rid of the old yeast. So the you. Anybody got any old yeast? I'm not talking about Fleshman's, you know. I'm talking about the things the Holy Spirit's convicting you. What's the Holy Spirit convicting you of these days? In your devotional life, in church, in your friendships, your conversations, he's always at work convicting us of sin. He doesn't want us just to stay status quo. That won't work. He's always calling us higher. He's always calling us. When you leave here today, he's calling you to something to obey. Something to obey. You can't go in the word. Every time we go to the word, there ought to be something we obey when we walk out. Now, get rid of the old yeast, he says, so that you may be new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This helps us understand the gospel that God has cleaned up our lives. When we're baptized into Christ, that's what he does. Now, is it all over? Well, no. We know the sin nature uh, is still there. And so we are prone to sin. But God helps us see it and understand it, identify it, and uproot it from our lives. The festival of harvest gives us a picture of the resurrection and judgment. In the New Testament, for instance, Jesus is referred to as the first fruits. This is the, remember, the festival of harvest, it was the one that was sometimes called the festival of first fruits because it was the beginning of the harvest. Jesus is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That is, the first fruits of those who have died. So when Jesus came out of the, of the grave, it was like the Hebrew people waving the sheaf of wheat, knowing there's more coming. I love the previews when I go to the theater. I don't like to be late for the previews. I love all that. And I, I nudge my wife, you know, got to see that one. Oh, not a chance. You know, whatever it is. So. When Jesus came out of the grave, it was the ultimate preview of a coming attraction. When the clouds will open, when he will descend, and those of us who have died in Christ are going to be raised first. He was the first fruits of all of us who are going to be raised to meet him in the air someday. Unless we're alive, and then we get to go up as we are and get a new body. Isn't that great? That's good news. 
1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now this also helps us understand the judgment. Because this festival is likened to Pentecost of the New Testament. You remember Pentecost. Pentecost is when, when God's spirit was poured out on the apostles. They began to speak in languages they didn't understand. People from all over the known world were there to celebrate Passover. They heard the gospel, the good news of Jesus being proclaimed. And that day, it wasn't a harvest of grain. It was a harvest of people that took place. And 3,000 people were baptized into Jesus Christ. Their lives were cleaned up for him. And they were on their way to heaven with him forever. Jesus described this world, his people, all the world, as a field and those who uh, surrender to him as his as his harvest and those who don't who are his enemies as the weeds that will be burned up one day Jesus said in John chapter 4 don't you have a saying it's still four months until harvest I tell you open your eyes and look at the fields they're ripe for harvest even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together what's that about he's saying to his disciples would you guys just look around remember this happens at the woman at the well the samaritan woman and and they've gone to get lunch and they say oh eat something he says i have a food you don't know anything about he says to his disciples open your eyes guys look at all the people around you that god's put in your life and you don't see what you're called to do. They're the potential harvest. It's the same thing he's saying to us, brothers and sisters. God has put people in your life and my life that he loves intensely and he wants them for himself. And he's calling us every day to leave the safety of the 99 and go engage the one to bring them into the family of God. That's at the, that's at the heartbeat of our vision that we want to be people that are not afraid to build relationships and welcome unbelievers into our lives. We want to enjoy them as friends, as people created in the image of God and earn the right to have a conversation with them about the one that we believe in and whom we have had life. The Feast of Ingathering gives us a picture of the seriousness of sin and the need for sacrifice. I said earlier, this was the feast that had more sacrifice involved than all the others. It reached its climax on day eight when water was poured out later by Jesus' day before the temple. And imagine Jesus. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem very often. But one occasion he was in Jerusalem, and it was the eighth day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the Feast of Ingathering. And the Bible says this. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Jesus was the fulfillment of the festival. That was what he was claiming that day. Yet most missed it. A few, a handful got it. And most missed him as the fulfillment of this festival and all the others. Exodus 23 and these few verses could be called the gospel according to Moses. Because all of them pointed to the fulfillment of all these festivals in the person of Jesus. That's why we don't have these festivals today. We don't need them. We appreciate them. We value them. We love the pictures they are of salvation and God's provision for the Jews. We appreciate the part they are of God's unfolding story through the years. 
But praise God, we don't have to follow the ceremonial law today because Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. He is the festival above all festivals, the feast above all feasts, the banquet above all banquets, and we feed on him all the time. So I ask again, where are you on the journey? Where are you moving? What adjustment are you making? Paul writes to the Romans in the first in the 12th chapter of his letter, that we're to be living sacrifices to the Lord, living sacrifices. What's that mean? Well, out of these few verses, here's three things. First, we're called to offer ourselves to God continually. God knew that one festival wasn't going to be enough, and so he gave him three. He knows our tendency to forget, and so he gave them these festivals three times a year to keep coming back to his story over and over again. That's why, brothers and sisters, we can't fail to be together on the Lord's Day. I skip a day, and it's not the same. You, many of you have given that testimony. If I, can't, if I can't make it on Sunday, something happened. My week just doesn't go as well. And even if you're in a funk when you walk in, there's something about walking out that I'm glad I came. Even if you didn't feel good, if you were in pain, it was a lousy week, maybe you're dead tired, it's good to be together with God's people. It always is because we come back to the story over and over again. We're called here to offer ourselves to God righteously as well. That parallels with the second festival where they got the yeast out of the household because here in community, you know, you know the kind of church I want us to be? I want us to get to the point that no matter what our lives look like, no matter how broken we are, no matter how much we've blown it, no matter what we've done, we can confess it to somebody and they're going to embrace us and love us back to healing and wholeness. That's what the church ought to be. And sadly, it's the place where we shoot each other. And that ought not be, brothers and sisters. We are broken together. We are wounded together. And we do not have it all together. (laughs) And we need the wholeness that comes from Jesus Christ. We need the blood of the sacrifice laid down for us. We are called to be a holy people and to sharpen each other and to challenge each other toward that. And we are called to offer ourselves to God wholeheartedly. It says here in the passage, you shall not let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. Man, I love that verse because I love fat, don't you? Well, of course you do. You love fat. You know, who wants, a, who wants Laura's lean burger, you know? You know, really. You know, we're looking for the 80-20 mix, right? It's, it's, it's not only cheaper, it's juicier, you know? We love that. The, the Jews certainly looked at their sacrifice that way. They knew the fat was the choicest part. Their temptation was to leave it and enjoy it later. But God says it's all to be consumed. Nothing is to be held back. And yet that's this very problem I have. I love you, God, but I got this other thing. <laughs> you know? God, here I am, except this part. God, I'm laying it all down. Don't ask me about that part. Well, our temptation is always to hold back to not fully surrender my life. And so we're always being convicted of our sin. 
We're always being convicted of what we haven't given. We come to the Lord on the Lord's day. But what do you look like on Tuesday? Would people be surprised to find out you were here this morning? You have a, find an easy time to talk with somebody in church, you know, who's here too. But when it comes to talking, engaging somebody who doesn't live the same kind of life you live, oh, I've got to keep my distance from them. How can they ever have a chance unless we build a relationship with them, right? We say God is first, and yet we're very calculated in what we, what we give to him financially. You know, we're very calculated, can't be too much, because I have a lot of stuff I want for myself. You know, I, I, you see, are you stuck? See, every single person here is either moving toward the cross of Christ or away from the cross of Christ. You cannot say, I don't think I'm going either way. No. If you say that, you're moving away. Because our default is toward the flesh, always. Because we have a sin nature. And unless we intentionally say, this is how I'm moving toward the cross. This is how I'm being convicted. This is how I'm seeing the Holy Spirit changing me. Then you're moving the wrong direction. We ought to be able to name this morning, this is what God has been doing with me in my life. It's tough. And I don't want you to think that he's not convicting me. He is. All the time. Betty Stam was a veteran missionary in China. The communists made her watch her husband be beheaded. Uh, and then hers was the same fate after that. And you think, how could a person ever do that? The Bible says that God, God's eyes are moving to and fro across the earth, looking for those who will be truly committed to him. And he looks over this audience for the same thing. Betty Stan was able to do that because this was her prayer when she was a young lady. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt and work with thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Could you pray that prayer today? Me meaningfully? This is what the heartbeat of our vision is. Our vision is all about, God, this is my house. It's not my house. This is not my apartment. It's not my mobile home. It's yours. And I lay it down for you to use for your glory as I welcome people to it, believers and unbelievers alike. Whoever you want me to bless with it, I want to be prompted to do that, and I want to dedicate my home to you. God, I've been in the fold a long time, and I have found it really good, and I'm more comfortable around people like me than unlike me. I don't really, I'm not comfortable with unbelievers anymore. Tough, God says. I lay down what's comfortable for me in relationships, and I want to see the people you've put in my path 
to engage with them, to love them as people, to enjoy them as people, to somehow gain a moment to have a conversation with them about what you've done in my life. God, this is the way I like church. This is the way I prefer it to be. But God, I want to lay down even my preferences to be whatever we need to be as a church. So when an unbeliever walks in, they'll say, man, I can relate to this crowd. That's what I want to be, God, for you. Are you willing to, can you say that today? We are called to make disciples who in turn will make other disciples. So we don't have these feasts, but in a few minutes, we're going to have one feast, aren't we? With a little bit of juice, a little bit of bread. And what we're doing in that moment is we are telling the story of Jesus. And we're remembering what happened to us. And that our story is now woven into his story and his story into our story. And we are proclaiming that we believe he's coming back. May we do that well for his glory.